Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Let's go on a road trip to start this morning together. We're going to travel a few thousand miles away from Orinoco, Missouri. I know you just got here, but... Let's be honest, it's all right to take a trip. Uh, We're going to head to Osaka, Japan. So while you wrap your head around that, grab your suitcase, your passport, whatever it is you need to take with you. Uh, I want to make one announcement as we get started. Just uh, something that's in the bulletin already, but want to highlight it for you. As you know, last fall we began the Generations Campaign, this two-year journey as a church to walk through some doors we felt like God had opened up for us. Some different initiatives that we wanted to invest our money, our resources, and as a church be about. And so on Sunday, March 11th, there's going to be a family gathering, just an information night where you can come, hear a little bit more about the Generations Campaign, hear some updates on some of the things that have started to fall into place, ask the questions that you might have. So there's info in your bulletin, 5 o'clock, Sunday, March 11th. All right, everybody ready to go? Four of you. Cool. All right, well, that's awesome. Regardless, we're all going either way. Uh, So we're going to head to Japan. We're going to head to Osaka. Uh, Japan is a country roughly the size of California, about 126 million people. And one of the reasons it's a part of the Generations Campaign and that we as a church feel compelled to do something about it is that less than 1% of the folks that live in Japan call that home would, would identify themselves as Christians. Less than 1% of the 126 million. It's hard to wrap my head around huge numbers like that. I'm not good with math anyways. That's why I went to Bible college. But regardless, it's just hard sometimes for me to always figure out exactly what that looks like. So we're going to take a trip and we're going to ride up to the top of the Umeda Sky Building in Osaka, Japan. It's located in the downtown area. You ride up an elevator, a number of stories. I won't tell you how many, just in case you're afraid of heights. And then you ride an escalator that has literally nothing below it except for the ground, hundreds and hundreds of feet below you. Uh, Ride an escalator up to an observation tower. And on that observation tower, you can see views like this where you can see 360 degrees around the Osaka area and in essence a basin that's kind of pinned in by three, on three sides by mountains and the fourth, sides, fourth side by water. And what you're looking at is one part of Japan where 19 million people live. Three times the density of New York City. 19 million people. And if less than 1% of them believe in Jesus, know who Jesus is, have said yes to Jesus as their savior. I have to be honest, when I'm there and I stand and I look, it's a bit overwhelming. Like, where do you start with 19 million people? Like, which direction do you go? Who do you leave out? Which of those cities that are represented in that basin are you gonna get to later? Like, how do you even start to do that? And, and if I'm honest, sometimes when I look at, at these folks, at these pictures, the task feels a bit impossible. A bit just so overwhelming that I don't, when I don't even know how to take the first step, I don't even know what to do. We're going to come back to Japan in a few minutes, but right now I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. Our text for this morning is John 6, 1 through 15. We're going to look at a story that perhaps is familiar for you, Feeding of the 5,000. I remember learning it as a little kid with flannel graphs and this little guy that had five loaves and two fish. And so what we're going to do is just look at this kind of in three different ways this morning for just a few minutes. 
We're gonna look at the story, just the facts of what happened. What is it that we read in this text that we learn about this, this miracle? Then we're gonna look at the implications. What did it mean for those that were in the audience, particularly a couple of Jesus' disciples and the crowd at large? What is it? What were the implications of this story? What was being communicated? And then third, we're gonna look at the application for ourselves. What does this mean, this story that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago? What does it mean for you and I? So let's dive into John chapter six, beginning in verse one. It says this, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. When Jesus, then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. John's setting the scene for our story. He starts with this sometime after this. Uh, What I hadn't realized until looking deeper into this is that we actually, as a church in this journey of discovery through the gospels, haven't been in the gospel of John for a bit In fact, between John chapter 5, verse 1, and our text today, John chapter 6, verse 1, about a half year has transpired. Some of these stories we've heard over the last few weeks of these miracles of Jesus showing, calming the storm, or healing a woman, or casting out demons, he's been doing all of these things in the midst. So even though in John's letter, it's just moved seamlessly from chapter 5 to chapter 6, a lot's been going on. Right at the end of chapter five, John is writing about Jesus, teaching about Moses and some things that are important there for, for the audience to understand. And we'll come back to that in a second. But we have this scene set where there's this large crowd. Jesus has been doing some teaching and we pick it up in verse five where it says, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to his disciple, Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Verse six, he asked this only to test him for, your, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. One of the things that Jesus is doing here with Philip is not testing in like a pass-fail kind of a way, but he's asking him to exercise Philip's faith, to say, look at what's going on. Where on earth would we ever buy enough bread for all these people? It must've been a Sunday, Chick-fil-A's closed. We can't do any catering. I got no other options like I've been by Walmart, it was an ice storm, people bought all the eggs and milk. What are we gonna do possibly to feed all of these folks? It's a test, yes, but not a pass-fail. It's just kind of a, a temperature check on Philip to see how much do you believe? Philip answers him this way. Verse seven, Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Philip, ever the realist, recognizes we could have two-thirds of a year worth of salary, and even if we did that, and even if there was a store that had enough food and we could buy it, even if we did all of that, what's it say? Even then, they would barely even, everybody would just get a bite, maybe, if we're lucky. That's the best we could do right now. Verse eight, another one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among too many? Andrew seems to have found some sort of a boy that either has packed a sack lunch or perhaps is a vendor trying to sell food to the crowd and he's found something that he gives to Jesus but he asks a really legitimate question. How far could this possibly go in a crowd this large? Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. So best estimates Culturally, they would have only counted the men at this point, but best estimates with women and children included went as high as 20,000 people in this audience. That's 
one huge shindig to be underprepared for, right? 5,000 men plus women and children. Let's say, let's go conservative. Let's say it's 12, 13,000 people. You don't whip that up in a heartbeat. You don't go to the cupboard, put a couple things together and solve this problem. But verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. Remember Philip's solution was eight months wages would maybe, maybe get everyone a bite. And Jesus just gave them as much as they wanted. Verse 12, when they all had had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So we have this story, this seemingly impossible problem presented to Jesus where he, he tests a couple of his disciples, has this interaction. It seems as if there is no way. And yet Andrew brings five loaves, two fish. Jesus performs a miracle. Everyone not only gets a little bit to eat, everybody gets more than they could possibly even want. And afterwards, you've got 12 baskets left over. So what are the implications of a story like this? What's Jesus really trying to accomplish with this miracle? Jake mentioned it earlier that this, this story shows up, this miracle shows up in all four Gospels. Clearly, being one of the few things that have, is in all four Gospels, there's some importance for it. I think it's important for us to start first with the fact that there's some specific detail given to this story. And the fact that it shows up in the Gospels means that it's important and that this isn't just some fairy tale that we get together and recite and think, oh, maybe wouldn't that be cool if Jesus could do something like that? John in his story records a location where this happens. He records a time of year where this would have occurred so that there would be no question about, do you ever hear that rumor about that thing that Jesus did? I can't remember if it was in the spring or the fall. There would know, they would know with certainty that this had occurred because it was an important miracle in Jesus' ministry. So let's look at Philip. Philip would have been one of Jesus' disciples all along. In fact, uh, as I did some study on this passage, one of the things pointed out is that Philip would have been there at Jesus' first miracle when he turned water into wine at the wedding. So Philip's been with Jesus in moments where there's a lot of people and resources are low and Jesus has done something with it. And yet when Jesus asks him that question, that's not the response Philip has. Perhaps the perfect response for Philip would have been something like, Jesus, I have no clue, but I know you're capable. What are you going to do today? But Philip responds in a way that, if I'm honest, is often what I do when I'm faced with a difficult situation. That there's times that I'm guilty that I just tell God a declaration of fact, of something that's true, but I, in essence, am in limiting, I'm limiting him by my response. God, you have no idea how messed up this is. Jesus, you don't know how difficult this is right now. You don't understand this declarative statement that somehow pins it as you don't understand it. You can't do anything about it because I'm smart. I know how to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I can't do anything about this. And consequently, that probably means you can't either. Ever been there? Where you face a situation and and you know you probably ought to cry out to God, but really what you just want to tell him is this is a huge mess. And I can't fix it. Well, Philip sits there having seen that miracle before and his response is accurate. Even if we had eight months wages, we couldn't do anything about this. 
Next enters Andrew. Slightly better. He comes to Jesus with five loaves and two fish and presents them to Jesus. And he does another thing that I found myself doing. Perhaps you have too. Where you make uh, some sort of a question. You present the problem to God in a way as though he had never considered that before. Andrew's statement, but how far will they go among so many? Demonstrating a little bit of a lack of faith. Enough faith to bring it to, to Jesus, but also this realistic, let's be real, Jesus. Like even if you divided these things up perfectly, there's really not that much that can happen, is there? So this story probably would have awakened a memory for those in the audience. I would guess for Philip and Andrew, it might have reminded them of a story as well. And for sure, those that would have read this Gospel of John would have remembered a story uh, that we'll just make reference to this morning from 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44, where the prophet Elijah is given this ability to perform miracles and he's able to take barley loaves, the same type of barley loaves that are referenced in this passage here. And he takes 20 barley loaves and he multiplies them and he feeds 100 people. And when it's over with, it says that there was some left over. And most scholars believe that there's a, a, an important reference being made here that would have reminded them of that story. That as good Jewish folks, they would have heard those stories growing up and they would remember. I remember when Elijah did something like this. He took 20, fed 100, had some left over. Jesus took five fed 5,000 plus the women and children and had 12 baskets left over. Why is that important? Because what's, what's Jesus been doing all throughout of his ministry? Trying to get people's attention that the one they've been waiting for has finally shown up. That all the things they've seen or heard or they think they know about God, now in the flesh, in person, it's showing up and it's bigger, it's better, it's more perfect, it's more complete than anything that they'd ever imagined before. There's no way that that crowd sitting there couldn't have observed this. And you would think, not go, there, this guy, he's, ah, this guy's good. There's something about him. Elijah did this little thing. Jesus has done this enormous thing. And so we have this crowd. It says in verse 2 that they were following him because they saw the miraculous signs he performed on the sick. And even in response to this miracle, verses 14 and 15 of John 6 say this, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they, begin to say, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. It's easy for me to criticize this crowd too. Just showing up for the miracles, not really interested in the teaching. But if we're honest, we can be guilty of that ourselves at times, can't we? That we enjoy the get-together and we enjoy what happens, but we're a little bit less willing to get our hands dirty or to really say, what does this actually mean for me? I'm totally cool to watch this happen, but I don't really want it to get messy for me personally. And see, this crowd misses the point. They're like, this is it. This is our king. This is what we want. We're Jews. We're under Roman oppression. We want to be freed. This is our guy. We put a crown on him. He builds an army. We defeat our enemies. We're free. And the whole time Jesus is saying, this isn't what I came for. I didn't come to rescue you from physical oppression. I came to establish an eternal kingdom. I came to rescue you from your spiritual oppression, to take care of your sins, to handle the impossible things that you don't know how to solve. I've got them. 
And so we see this crowd perhaps missing the point a bit, but we see Jesus providing in a miraculous way so that there's 12 baskets left over. Again, I think a really important detail so that those that were in attendance and those that would hear about it later would know this actually happened. This isn't a once upon a time fable story that we made up. This is real data that we can look at. And to a Roman culture that believes in providing, that believed that ample provision at a party was a big deal, Jesus says, I'm the ultimate party giver. I had to smile when I thought about that because I think there must have been a little Roman in my grandma. Uh, I remember getting together on Christmas and no matter any time the meal that she would provide, it almost seemed as though she was preparing for a football team that was gonna like magically show up, right? There was so much food. And be like, eat more, eat more. You're like, I'm gonna explode, grandma. There's plenty, I'm totally fine. It's like, eat more, eat more. Like, why, why is there three more things of mashed potatoes? Who did you think was gonna show up? But we understand it as a host, as a hostess, right? Like the worst possible feeling would be to run out of something, to seem underprepared, to seem like we couldn't handle the situation that we were given. And what Jesus is communicating is he can, he has, he does, he will. He's always prepared. He's always got plenty. There's always leftover. No matter how hungry that crowd was, no matter how many people were there, he always had enough to provide for all of them and have some leftover. That's, who he, that's the God that we worship. And to the Jewish crowd that would have been told the stories of living in the wilderness and every morning waking up to manna and being told the instructions, take as much as you need for the day. Don't take too much. Don't try and store it. Just trust that every morning when you wake up, there will be bread for you to eat. Day after day after day, they did that. This is Jesus saying in a new way, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that provides. I'm the one that sustains. And every day, you don't have to hold on to anything in the hopes that I'm not gonna show up. I'll be here again tomorrow with absolutely more than you could possibly imagine that you need. I'll do that every day. And not just for you, not just for you, not just for you, for everybody. 12 baskets. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Perhaps there's more than an irony in some of the numbers in scripture at times that speak to a particular audience. That there was confidence that it wasn't just this section that got enough to eat and some of you guys over here are still hungry or just this section got enough and some people over here, but everybody was satisfied and afterwards it sat there almost as a visible reminder of what God had provided for everyone. So what does this mean for us? What's the application that we're supposed to take away? I want to offer a few different suggestions and I'll let you, uh, this can be a choose your own adventure. You can pick which one you like. See, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at these smaller scales. These are huge, significant miracles, but the audience is much smaller. Jesus is calming the storm on the lake in front of the 12 disciples. He's healing a woman in a crowd, but not a lot of people see all of that happening. He casts out the demons into the pigs and there was a crowd there, but suddenly this is a large audience. Suddenly Jesus is trying to communicate something and I think that perhaps one of the things he's trying to say is simply this, that, that we worship a God who specializes in situations that we see as impossible. That when our resources are depleted, when our faith is overwhelmed, when there's nothing that we seem to think that we could do to solve any sort of a particular problem, those are the moments where God shows up clearest. Because that's my testimony, isn't that yours too? Like I, if I can handle it on my own, why do I need God? 
If I could solve all my own problems, if I could get myself out of whatever situation that I'm in, then why on earth am I going to get together every Sunday with a bunch of believers and worship a God that just kind of fits into my schedule? No, our testimony is, this is when I was broken. This is when I was lost. This is when I was overwhelmed. This is when I could not do anything at all, and I was just there. But God picked me up. God rescued me. God healed me. We worship that God. Specializes in impossible situations, impossible things. Those are his wheelhouse. When we finally have to give up, perhaps, and only he can do what he can do. So perhaps there's three different uh, groups of us in, in this room this morning. For some of you, you understand that. You, you've given up. You know where you've been. You know what Jesus has done. You know what that means for you. And so perhaps just this morning, all you need is to be encouraged, to be reminded of the one that you're journeying with. I think that's where the disciples lost their way at, at points is they forgot the guy they were walking with. It seems obvious to us, like, if you not seen the last five ser- sermons we've heard, he's been performing all these miracles. Why would he not do this now? Maybe we just need to be reminded of who we walk with and who he is and how faithful he is and how capable he is. And that's what you need to hear this morning. Perhaps you fit in the second group and my guess is that most of us probably fit in this group. My encouragement for us is simply to give him what we have in our hands. See, what Andrew did well is he came to Jesus with not enough and just handed it to him. I wish he'd had this really great line like, Jesus, I found this. It's not nearly enough, but I know with your amazing power, you can solve everything. But he didn't say that, but he did give it to him. He asked the question, but he still brought it. Andrew may have brought those things, but it was Jesus that performed the miracle. It was Jesus that did immeasurably more with what was brought to him. And I wonder if as a church and as individuals and if, if, as if families, that maybe, maybe, perhaps that's what God's asking us to do. To look at the gifts and abilities and talents and skills that we have and give them to him so that he can do even more than we possibly could. That perhaps we have the ability to build a reputation We have the ability to to build our own story or create our own means. Those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but sometimes I think God puts situations and says, I've gifted you. If you'll give it to me, I can make this make sense. Last Sunday, I sat in the back corner over there. Mark told, referred to a story about uh, an interaction that Moses had with God at the burning bush. And if I steal his phrase, which I've never done before, maybe never do again, I made my tail wag, right? I've heard him say that a few times. Because I love that I was already going to share this this week and that he was referencing it last week. But he talked about Moses' interaction with God at the burning bush. And Moses is arguing with God, I can't go represent you. I can't go back to Egypt and stand before Pharaoh and demand that he lets the Israelites go. I can't do it. I'm a terrible arguer. I'm a bad communicator. There's no way I can do it. Push pause. I always love this part of the story, the irony that Moses' argument that he's a bad communicator is that he keeps talking to God about how, what a bad communicator he is, and consequently he couldn't go communicate for God because he can't communicate well, and he's communicating that right now to God. I love that. You're like, Moses, just stop. You're not making it any, just shut up. Stop. The more you talk, the worse it gets. I've been there. It's a terrible feeling. Just let it go. I want to read two verses from Exodus chapter 4. 
And I want to ask you to listen to these two verses, the beginning of the interaction Moses has with God at the burning bush, and then after that interaction in Moses' heads. And I I just want you to answer this question, what changes in these two verses? Exodus 4 verse 2 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, What is that in your hand? A staff, Moses replied. And verse 20, So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. So what changed? Wasn't Moses. Still fearful. Maybe a little bit more empowered, but at the end of the day, still a reluctant leader of the Israelites. God didn't change. God never changes. It's one of the most amazing things about him is that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what changed? What was in Moses' hand is what changed. In verse 2, it's a stick. And in verse 20, it's the staff of God. What changed for Andrew and this feeding of the 5,000 is when it stopped being five loaves and two fish in his hands and he put it in Jesus's. And I wonder if for some of us, it's time for us to take the things we have and give them to Jesus and ask him to do what only he can do. And maybe there's a third group And stick with me for a second because my advice for the third group is give up, which is not usually a good point to make in a sermon. So follow me for a second. For some of us, the situations we find ourselves in are absolutely impossible. Walking through these doors, showing up here this morning was incredibly difficult. And there's burdens sitting on you that feel like only you can understand and no one could ever solve, and they feel literally impossible. Maybe it's a situation in your home or in your marriage or in your finances or in your work or with a child or with health or whatever it might be, and there's something that you simply just have to say, I don't feel like I have anything I could give God that's in my hands right now, and you just have to simply place that at his feet. And believe that if he can feed 5,000 men plus women and children out of five loaves and two fish, he can probably do something in your situation too. And perhaps, like the crowd, we've been following along, kind of enamored by the miracles in the show and not have actually made it personal for ourselves. And so maybe the challenge for some of us this morning is that we've got to stop just watching and we've got to give in. We've got to submit. We've got to ask Jesus to do what only he can do with our sin and with our struggles and take it away. The reality is we're never going to be good enough, smart enough, strong enough, tough enough to handle it on our own. We're going to have to ask Jesus to do it for us. So we started this morning in Japan. I want to take us back there for just a second. This last time I was there in August... Jay and Caitlin Greer and their family took us up to the Sky Building and we toured around and I kind of wandered off on my own. That's the introvert in me. Kind of got away from people and did the 360 degree tour. And as I came back, I I came upon a scene that I took a different picture of and I'd forgotten I took this picture. I was pulling the other photos uh, to share a couple of weeks ago and I was reminded that I had taken this picture as well. Caitlin and Isla are off having a conversation and this is Jay with his boys. Rowan and Frankie and Mac. And I love kind of the vision casting of dad with his arm out holding his boys. They seem kind of captured. But can I tell you what this story has begun to mean to me for the last couple of weeks? 
The only difference between the first pictures we saw of Japan and this one is that there's somebody in it who's going to do something about the problem. And in some ways, this is a physical picture for me of what five loaves and two fish can look like. So I probably won't tell Jay this, uh, but he and the rest of the missionaries working in Mustard Seed Network, they're ridiculously outnumbered. It makes no sense to do what they're doing. There's 126 million people that don't know the gospel. And even if you think about Jay and Ethan and you think about their families and you think about the Welchels and the, the Wests, you think about the farmers and the Hankies and the Rodriguez's and all these other couples that are serving and working over there right now. They're so outnumbered, it seems absolutely impossible. And yet perhaps one of the things that I was supposed to be reminded of is why we as a church said we wanted to walk through this door in a generations campaign to try and make the gospel more available to folks in Japan. Because our, mon- our money is a drop in the bucket. And those folks over there are completely outnumbered. And yet if the feeding of the 5,000 was true back then, something even more incredible could happen perhaps now. And God's power, and only God's power, could do something through those folks that would make an entire country's future different. But that's not just something for the super Christians. I think that's something for all of us. There's over a thousand names written on a window in our lobby right now that we didn't come up with, we came up with. People that we know that need to know Jesus. Our staff prayed, like Mark said, that we would last week. And for the entire week, I've had 18 names sitting on my desk. And I've had these two things going back and forth where at least twice a day, I'm stopping to pray for those 18 names. And I've also known that I'm gonna talk about a passage where God can do the impossible. And I've had to sit there and realize I don't know anything about those 18 folks. I don't know their last name. I don't know their story. I don't know if they've heard the gospel. I don't know if they've fallen away. I don't know if they're angry. I don't know if they're sick. I don't know any of those things. But I don't have to. I can just simply pray and ask God to do something that only he can do. Through me, through our church, through you, through relationships. So maybe you weren't here last week or maybe you were a little bit reluctant and maybe you just need to go out there and write some more names on the window and make this impossible task look even more impossible. Or maybe you wrote a name down last week and you just struggled to do anything about it all week and this week is the week you've got to do something about it. But my invitation this morning is simply this, that we don't act like the crowd in Jesus' time that was there to watch the show and didn't really want to participate, enjoyed watching him do his thing, but didn't really want to respond ourselves, and we do something. Maybe it's just raise our hands in celebration that we have a God who specializes in impossible things, that we have a God, that we can be believers in a gospel and in a God who is bigger than any situation that we could ever face. Maybe you need to just release the things in your hands and give them to God and just open that up and just say, God, you do what only you can do. Maybe you need to make a decision for him and just say, I'm done trying to figure this out for myself. Maybe you need to go in the lobby, write some names, pray for some names, be committed to some conversations. Whatever that is, let's do that together as a church. Let's not just merely see the things that God's doing and observe them. Let's be a part of it. Let's stand and sing. Thank you for listening. 
to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.